No subject has caused more people to turn away from God than the teaching on hellfire. Tonight we find out why, while untangling all of the mess that has come to us from the traditions of the past. Good evening and welcome to the End of Time series. My name is Sharissa and I'm really thrilled that you are joining us tonight from wherever you're tuning in from. I know some of you are listening on radio and we've been hearing from you. Uh, thank you for letting us know where you are joining us from, from around the world. And uh, before Lyle presents tonight's presentation, I do want you to know that as we are coming to you live, we've deliberately done this because we want to give you an opportunity to interact with us and we have moderators that are watching our YouTube channel, our live stream, our Facebook page live stream and also the website and uh, they are looking for your questions and comments so that I can direct them to Lyle uh, as he presents in just a moment. You may have questions that come to your mind. Don't hesitate, write them in, send them through, and we will have a good Bible study uh, as we go through this program. Also want you to know that if you are going to try and write your comments in or questions on Facebook, the only way that we will see those is if you write in directly to our Facebook live stream. Not If, it, if someone's seen, shared it on another page, we may not see your comments or questions. You have to send them in to the direct Facebook live stream. And so without further ado, let's hear tonight's presentation. Nation will rise against nation. There will be droughts, pandemics, and earthquakes. When these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. Sadly, Using religion as a way to rip off the poor and make enormous amounts of money for a small group of people is not restricted to the modern era of prosperity gospel preachers in the United States and Nigeria. Way back in 1517, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther split Christianity in half. He became frustrated by the Roman Catholic Church selling the opportunity to sin in an effort to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica. Another monk by the name of Tetzel was touring the country with a large money chest and paper certificates of forgiveness. These certificates could be purchased for just about any kind of sin imaginable, particularly the sins of relatives who had died and were supposedly burning in the hellish fires of purgatory. These poor souls had apparently been condemned to thousands of years of torture by God who would wait until they had been burned enough to release them from this hellhole and take them to heaven. According to Tetzel, if you purchased one of his certificates, the moment your money clinked in the bottom of his treasure chest, the soul would be instantly released to be with God. Tetzel was a master at painting vivid word pictures of the horrors of purgatory and pulling on the heartstrings of his customers to convince them to part with their hard-earned money. How could they pass up the opportunity of relieving the suffering of their wife or son or daughter? And what would these people think of them if, they, if he didn't relieve their suffering? Moreover, how much longer would they have to suffer in purgatory themselves for neglecting the suffering of their loved ones? On top of all this, wasn't the money going to a good cause? Building one of the most luxurious cathedrals in the world? Then, in Tetzel's great generosity, he made discounts available for the poor. 
The success of this trade is testified today by this present-day magnificence of St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. Not only did Tetzel sell forgiveness for the sins of those who had died, but indulgences were available so that the living people could buy the opportunity to sin with impunity. A nobleman by the name of Hans von Haeck purchased one such indulgence without telling Tetzel the details of the sin he had in mind. A few days later, as Tetzel was leaving Leipzig on his way to Berlin, von Haeck with a band of men ambushed him, gave him a thorough beating and stole his money chest. This frustrated the local ruler, Duke George, who liked von Haeck until it was found that he'd purchased an indulgence for the very act. With that discovery, the case was thrown out of court. The system of indulgences still exists. Some years ago, while researching in Rome with my wife, we attended an outdoor mass conducted by Pope Francis in St. Peter's Square, which is actually round. For attending the mass, we were given a card giving us three free indulgences from going to confession. The German monk Martin Luther, while in Rome 500 years before us, went from church to church and from sacred site to sacred site, accumulating as much forgiveness of sins as he possibly could. Then one day he decided to climb Pilate's staircase on his knees, kissing each step as he went and repeating a prayer. He'd been told that by doing so, he could expiate enough sins to get a soul out of purgatory. Halfway up, he was forcefully, forcefully reminded of Romans 1.17, which states, The just shall live by faith. Accepting that the just shall live and be saved by faith, Luther found himself immersed in an ancient controversy dating all the way back to Augustine of Hippo in the 4th century. Augustine had invented the concept of original sin, stating that every person was born guilty of what Adam had done and was therefore totally depraved. As a result, all were eternally damned to hell and could do nothing about it. God had the power to save by grace, but we were powerless to do anything to affect our salvation. In fact, he said, we were so powerless we could not even choose salvation. Clearly some people were saved and some were lost, and so the only explanation he could come up with was that God in his sovereignty had chosen some to be saved and others to be lost. Free will did not exist. Salvation was outside of us and by grace alone. A primary opponent of Augustine was Pelagius. He taught that humanity was not depraved, but instead was good, good enough to keep God's law. Pelagius believed that a God of love would give us the power of choice. And so he concluded that we had the power both to choose God and to follow God. Grace was our reward for keeping the law. The church at the time struggled with these competing concepts and tried to come up with a compromise view halfway in between. They concluded that we were too evil to be saved, too depraved to keep God's law perfectly enough to be saved, but that we did have the power to choose to receive God's grace. Salvation was by grace which was received through the sacraments. Of course, there were many who could not receive grace via the sacraments for a host of different circumstances, and for these, a system of safety nets was developed to get nearly everyone into heaven. One of these safety nets was purgatory, where the person could burn for several hundred thousand years until enough evil had been burned out of them and they were good enough to reach heaven. To then have a level worse than purgatory for the completely unsaved, the pagan Greek, con Greek concept of an eternal hellfire was adopted. 
Another safety net was indulgences where a person could buy their way in. And all of this became the basis of Tetzel's trade. Luther was an Augustinian. And when he accepted salvation by grace alone and rejected salvation by grace received through the sacraments, he concluded that there was no such thing as free will, for choosing to follow Christ was something we did not have the power to do as reprobates. Other reformers such as John Calvin and Philip Melanchthon took this a little further until it finally it was declared a heresy by the Calvinists who claimed that humans had the power of choice. To have the power to choose salvation, they claimed, was to have the power to save oneself and made salvation a human work rather than an act of God. From this, the natural conclusion is that salvation is not for everyone, but that Jesus died to save a limited number of people only. God had been able to choose the number of people that would make the sacrifice of Jesus worthwhile, pre-select those people, and create them to save them. The others, of course, were created by the divine power of God for the sole reason of being lost, and so that God could burn them forever in eternal hellfire. Enter Jacob Arminius. This great Dutch theologian rose to prominence in the late 16th century. He pointed out that without free will, love cannot exist, and that the only way we can experience the love of God is by exercising the power of choice. Arminius agreed that humanity was totally depraved and unable to save himself. But rather than claiming that because of this, God would choose some to be saved and others to be sent to hellfire, he pointed out that God had died for whosoever in the most famous text in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Arminius taught that if Jesus died for whosoever, then Jesus must first extend his grace to us to give us the power to be able to choose God. And then having chosen God, that grace would then become the means of our salvation. He maintained the power of choice and a God of love along with salvation by grace alone. So at one extreme, by allowing humanity free will, but requiring the sacraments to receive grace, the Catholic Church had to invent purgatory as a means of getting all those into heaven who had missed out on one or more of the sacraments. Any thinking person can see that apart from this not being anywhere in the Bible, it does not represent a God of love. On the opposite extreme, under Calvin, freedom of choice was abolished. With freedom of choice gone, any type of love ceased to exist. For without freedom to choose, love is annihilated. Once love was gone, humans were reduced to being robots who had no choice in their salvation. Now you had a God who created some people so that they could basically become his fun robots in heaven programmed to receive forever to receive his grace and do his will. Worse still, God created the vast majority of people for no other reason than that he could burn them eternally. Any thinking person can see that this is also not a God of love. In fact, this God is a tyrant worse than any human tyrant who has ever existed. Added to this, all the questions that people have asked in relationship to the concept of eternal hellfire. From Vlad the Impaler to Jack the Ripper, the horrors of the Inquisition or the Holocaust, we have seen some terrible monsters on earth that have taken great pleasure in extending the lives of their victims so that they could torture them as long as possible. 
But eventually, even the worst of our human tyrants have allowed their victims to find relief in death. So what does this say about God? Humans cannot live in fire. And so if humans are to live in hellfire, they must be continually preserved by the divine, miraculous, supernatural grace of God just to stay alive. Now, some can see some justice in earth criminals receiving some pain, but when is enough enough? Many teach that enough is never enough and that God will sustain the wicked for eternity, forever, without end, by his grace, just so that he can talk to them. In a million, billion, quintillion years from now, people will be suffering excruciating torment that has only just begun and will never end. And all for no other reason that God created them without their choice so that he could do that to them. Think about that. I have to say that if that is the character of God, then I want to have nothing to do with him at all, ever. No human has ever been that evil. A less extreme view still holds to the concept of eternal hellfire. It does not go so far as to claim that God created people so he could burn them, but rather that people choose not to accept God of their own free will. But this doesn't solve the problem. If someone chooses not to be your friend, you might feel the pain of rejection. But have you ever decided that as a result of that pain, that you want them to burn forever and forever? And then in a quintillion ages from now, they will not have suffered enough pain yet for having chosen not to have you as their friend. In this scenario, if you think that at any point they will have suffered enough, then you are more merciful than the God that many present to us. And if we as humans have more mercy than God, why should we serve someone who is not even better than us? Do you start to see the problem? Do you see how the doctrine of eternal hellfire has created more atheists than any other teaching? The fact that many Christians simply accept this without asking for an explanation is downright scary to non-Christians and a most powerful argument for them not to have anything to do with Christianity. Some have argued that the fear of hellfire is great motivation to be saved. The problem is that it is even greater motivation to rebel and hate God. Once time ends, sin is eradicated, the earth is made new. Why is God never able to put it all behind him and move on? Why must he continue to preserve pain forever? Does God just really love pain? The solution for many Christians has been to simply deny the existence of hellfire altogether. But this doesn't solve the problem either. What are you do going to do with the 50-odd references in, 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 in the scripture to it? Are you going to simply delete them? And if you can delete those verses just because you don't like them, then what is stopping someone else from deleting John 3.16 or any other verse central to the gospel story? Clearly, this is one of the most tangled, messed up doctrines in Christianity today. And this evening, we're going to untangle the mess by sidestepping the traditions of the past and finding out what the Bible says by considering Four simple Bible facts. So get ready to send your questions through as we get ready to dig into Scripture.
All right. This is a hot topic tonight, Lyle. Oh, oh. <laughs> that's one way of describing it, yes. <laughs> and maybe before you lead us in this continuing study, just a reminder to all of our viewers that connected with each presentation in the End of Time series, we have a wonderful free offer that has extra details for your personal study. Tonight's one is The Truth About Hell. And if you'd like to get your free copy, please text the keyword hell to the number on your screen or for the radio listeners 0428-833-386 and also if you want to chat with somebody about this subject maybe you'd even like to have someone study the bible with you text the word chat to the same number and someone will connect with you and also lyle just before you take off yes um lyle let me know just before the presentation tonight that next wednesday when we come back yes next wednesday okay we need to talk about this yeah he has decided because we keep having so many questions that we're going to have a bit of a shorter presentation and longer question time that's right because we're starting to get a backlog of questions and there are such good questions coming through (laughs) Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to spend more time answering questions we're going to have a shorter the bible study will still be there it will be solid but we're going to have a shorter bible study and a longer question time so that yes we can catch up Awesome. And, and while you're there, don't forget to hit the subscribe button, the like button, uh, the bell button, all of those buttons, because by doing that, you can share this with so many other people. We want you to share this as far and wide. Let's make the end.digital go viral this evening. Great. All right, Lyle, where are we going? Yes, fact number one. We're going to do four facts in relationship to Hellfire. Some of these, maybe all of them, are going to surprise you. But these are the facts of Scripture. Here comes fact number one. Fact number one is this. The unsaved do not go to any place of punishment as soon as they die, but are reserved into the grave, in the grave, until the day of judgment to be punished. There's fact number one. All right, well, where do you get that in the Bible? Okay, there's a bunch of places we can get it from, Sharissa. Okay. And I'm wondering whether you can read for me what it says in Matthew chapter 13. We had somebody ask about this last night, Mm -hmm. and I promised I would cover it tonight, so we're starting with it. Great. Just as we promised. We're going to start here. Uh, Read this first section for us and then we will go back through and look at it in more detail. So which verse would you like me to get? Just read the first first little section right there. 29? Um, Yeah, starting in verse 29. So Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 29. Okay. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the weeds also disappeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the weeds, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the weeds and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, so Jesus tells a parable, a story. Have you ever grown a garden? Not very successfully. Uh, what were you more successful at, weeds or weeds. plants? <laughs> yes, I, I tend to be more successful at weeds than yep. uh, plants as well. So I kind of really feel for this guy. Uh, but anyway, the disciples came to Jesus 
And they asked Jesus, can you explain what this parable is all about? And so Jesus gives the explanation. Teresa, why don't you read it for us? Okay. So his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds. He said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. Uh huh. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the weeds are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the the end of this world. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Love this. Love this explanation right, there, right here. Let's go through it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bible says, you know, the person who sows the good seed, that's the Son of Man, that's Jesus. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the weeds are the sons of the wicked one, the followers of Satan. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest, notice this, is the end of the world. Okay, so there it is. The harvest is the end of the world. The reapers are the angels. That's when Jesus comes back. Therefore, as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this world. The Son of Man will send out His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those that practice lawlessness and throw them into the furnace of fire. There will be weakening, wailing and gnashing of feet, and the righteous will shine forth as uh, in, in the brightness of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so the Bible is very clear right here. Jesus says that hellfire does not take place until the end of the world. So hellfire is not burning right now. It does not take place until the end of the world. So there's no one in hellfire? There is nobody in hellfire right now. As it says here, let's look at it. The, uh, the field is the, where, where does it say here? Um, the, good seed is the, the good seed is the son of, is the, the, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the son of the kingdom. Uh, the harvest is At the end, end of, of the, world. the world. Okay. Well, that's pretty clear. Have so you the harvest is the, at the end of the world, and that's when the wicked are thrown into hellfire, then nobody's there yet. Okay. What else can you tell us, Lyle? Okay. What I can tell you is this from this passage. Mm-hmm. There is such thing as a hellfire, and there is such thing as heaven. There is a hellfire to shun and a heaven to win. But we haven't stopped yet because there are so many more things that we can learn about this uh, particular passage right here. Because the next question that sort of comes up in my mind is, well, you know, uh, the Bible says that nobody is in hellfire right now. So where are the wicked right now? Yeah, where are they? We did mention this the other night. We did. <laughs> we'll read it again. Second uh, Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Okay. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Okay. So the Bible says that the unjust are reserved unto the day of judgment to be punished. Future tense. All the way through there. Whereabouts they're reserved? Uh, John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. Read that one for us, Teresa. Okay. The hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And finally, we go to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27. Before we go there, just looking at John 5, 28, 29 right there, the Bible says, the Bible tells us where the wicked are reserved. They are reserved in the grave until the resurrection of damnation. Mm-hmm. You can't have a resurrection if you're already alive. Correct. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, not eternal life in hellfire. All right. Okay, I'm jumping ahead. Uh, <laughs> Matthew 16, yeah. verse 27. 
Okay, the Bible here says, The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. So nobody has received their reward yet because Jesus hasn't returned yet. The righteous haven't received their reward of eternal life, and the wicked haven't received their reward of condemnation in hellfire. All right. So we're getting there. We've, made our, we've, we've sort of got our first fact right there. Nobody's in hell right now. The Bible is clear. That's established. All right. I've got some questions for you from last night. Okay. And this one came to us through the back end of our Facebook page. Fantastic. From Dana. Yes. And he's asking, Revelation 27 to 10, are you saying that the people who are deceived by Satan in these verses are the wicked who had been resurrected at the end of the thousand years? If so, doesn't that mean that they die three times? First time before Jesus returns or at his return. Second time when the fire devours them all in Revelation 20 verse 9. And the third time when they are cast into the lake of fire, which is called the second death. I'm confused. Uh, this doesn't make sense because it says it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And that's from Hebrews 9.27. Okay. That's a really good question. And this person is very observant. And this is what you're going to find in the book of Revelation. Revelation will often give you a prophecy and then it will go over and recap what it's just talked about. And so in Revelation chapter 19, the prophecy starts uh, right there in verse 11. It traces its way all the way down through chapter 20 until it comes down to verse 10. And then it backs up and talks about the great white throne judgment that has happened when the wicked come up and surround the city. And so you don't have two deaths in Revelation chapter 20. You've got one death that is repeated twice. And so you'll notice here uh, in verse 10, the Bible says, the devil that deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone with a beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented with fire and brimstone uh, forever and ever. And so here you've got the wicked being thrown into the lake of fire. You go down a few verses. It repeats the same thing. They're not being burned twice. It's just recapping with more detail. It comes back to verse 9 and 10 and verse 11 through 415 are expansion are an expansion of verse 9 and 10. Okay. So. This one's also from a YouTube viewer from last night, and they ask, uh, where are Satan's angels during the millennium? They're with Satan because they don't have access to anywhere else in the world either. Uh, having chosen Satan, having chosen to follow Satan, they are restricted to the only planet that has given them access. All right. And that was, that's really helpful. Now, this one's come to us uh, tonight from Jared. Can you please explain more about being a born-again Christian, also, who are the cloud of witnesses you mentioned, especially about the three, some of, like, three people went to heaven. We talked about Enoch, Elijah, yes. and Moses. Yes. And some others who are in heaven, who are these witnesses? Maybe. Okay, the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about them. Um, now, I think we wanted to, they wanted something about being born again. Yes. Okay. Uh, that's probably a big subject. I could spend an entire evening on that, on that subject, and that would be just amazing to dig into. But being born again is a little bit like this. If you were born again, if you were able to go back into your mother's womb and be born again, you would be a different person. It's that simple. And when the Bible speaks about being born again, what the Bible is talking about is you becoming a different person. The way that happens is quite simple. If you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, ask him to be your Lord, your Savior, and your best friend, he will fill you with his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit will change you so that things that you used to love doing as in sins, you now hate doing and things that you used to hate doing, like Bible studying and singing songs and praising God, you will now love to do. The Bible says that it's a little bit like the wind. Jesus described it like the wind. You can see the evidence of it, 
but you can't actually tangibly see what is taking place when a person is born again. But it's an amazing experience to have and it's an amazing experience to see somebody else have if you've never experienced it. Tonight is the night for you to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lyle. Uh, another one from Doug. Oh, I, I, uh, the, the cloud of witnesses. We oh, didn't cover the cloud back? of witnesses. Okay, yes. Yeah, we missed that bit. Yep, sorry. Okay, so here's what we've got. The Bible talks about Enoch, who was translated, taken to heaven without seeing death. Then the Bible talks about Elijah, a fiery chariot, chariot, the Bible says, came out of heaven, gathered him up and took him to heaven. The Bible talks about Moses and how that after Moses died, he was resurrected and taken to heaven. You can read about that in the book of Jude. So we know you've got those three in heaven. Then we talked about this the other night. The Bible has very little to say on this. When Jesus died, there was a limited resurrection that took place. How many people were involved? We have no idea. But Paul tells us in Ephesians that these people were taken, a multitude were taken to heaven when Jesus ascended to heaven in AD 31, just after his uh, crucifixion at the, at, at the time of the ascension. And so, yes, these people do appear. They preach the gospel and then they vanish. Well, where did they go? They went back to heaven with Jesus. How many there are? The Bible doesn't say. That's pretty much all the Bible has to say about them. Okay. Lyle, here's another one. This is from Dana on Facebook. Uh, what did Lyle mean by the judgment happening open before all the courts before Jesus returns? Was he saying that happens in heaven before Jesus comes back? What's the point of that if hardly anyone is in heaven at that stage? Okay. Yes. Well, don't blame me for what the Bible says, first of all. Um, but the judgment has to take place before Jesus comes back. You don't, uh, you know, even we as human beings who are naturally evil know that you don't, you know, you hand out rewards and, and give some people eternal life and, and condemn others to damnation. And having done that, say, well, now let's sit down and have a judgment to find out, you know, who's guilty and who's not. Um, that would be wrong. That would be not, that would not be just. You find, we read this passage in Matthew chapter 16, uh, verse uh, 27. The son of man will come in the glory of his father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Clearly, the judgment has already taken place mm -hmm. if Jesus is handing out rewards. You go to Revelation chapter 22, down in the end of the Bible, Jesus says this, Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. The judgment has happened already. Mm -hmm. If you go back to the judgment scene, uh, you'll find that in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And the person here who's asking the question is absolutely right because there are not that many humans in heaven, but that does not mean that heaven is empty, not by any stretch of the imagination. No, not at all. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7. And at the very least, we have all of the angels who are present here. And who else? We don't know. How would, how would we know who inhabits the universe? The universe is vast. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9, I beheld till thrones were cast down. The Ancient of Days sat. His garment was white as snow, the hair of his head like the pure wool, his throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand, thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. That's the judgment taking place in heaven. 
And the Bible says that as a result of this, of course, you get the, uh, the beast is condemned and you know, eventually destroyed and so forth. This is all taking place before Jesus comes back. And the Bible says it happens in open court before the assembled multitudes of the universe. Yes, I've read that, that passage many times and it's definitely a court scene. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's well, definitely a court scene. It says the judgment, you know, the, yep. the, the judgment was set, the books were opened. Let's, yep. let's, let's get this happening. Excellent. Well, maybe you can tell us what the next fact is. Okay, fact number two. Here we go. Fact number two is this. None of the unsaved will be thrown into hellfire until after the second coming of Jesus. So we're going to begin, Charissa, in uh, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. All if right. you could read that one for us, please. It says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Okay, the Bible describes hellfire as being the second death. Now, let me point out the obvious to you here this evening. You can't have a second death unless you've had a resurrection and a first death. Yep. That's obvious, right? Yep. So I'm saying the obvious right here. We know that the resurrection happens when Jesus comes back. You know, the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth some to the resurrection of damnation. Mm -hmm. So we know the resurrection takes place of righteous when Jesus comes back, of unrighteousness at the, of the end of the thousand years. And so we know that hellfire can't take place until after that because hellfire is described as the second death. Okay, that's good. All right, Revelation chapter 20, uh, we'll pick up this one from last night, verse yep. 7 to 9. Let's just summarize something here because it's kind of going to lead on to our next fact. All right, the Bible says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Resurrection of the wicked. Yep. Will go out to deceive the nations which are in the earth. There's the wicked in the earth. To gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. The wicked of all ages. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And then verse 14 calls it the second death. This yes. is the second death. This is the second death. Absolutely. So this fire that comes down and fills up, forms a lake, the devil is thrown into it. The Bible describes this as the second death. Okay. I've got a question here from a viewer, which actually is right on this. So yes. Maybe just to clarify, will there be two or three resurrections? Just the Bible is saying the second. <laughs> <laughs> maybe... Okay, so there's two primary resurrections. Yes. And that's the resurrection of, of life and that's the resurrection of damnation. Yes. Okay, separated by a thousand years. Are there other resurrections other than that? Well, yes, absolutely. Jesus raised some people to life when he was here on earth. You've got um, Moses who has been resurrected. And so, yes, there are other resurrections. Okay. Uh, but there's just the two big ones. Okay. We'll take a couple more questions from sure. viewers. Uh, this one's from Philip Cadden, and uh, he's watching us on Facebook. Thank you, Philip. And he says, when Jesus was crucified on the second day, did he go to the depths of hell to get the keys of hell? Uh, my screen just went to get the keys of hell and rise from the dead on the third day. Uh, if you can find that anywhere in the Bible, you'll be doing far better than me. Okay. So go do some searching. Okay. 
this one is from Vladimir, also a Facebook viewer tonight. Welcome. And he says, what is wrong with donating offerings to the church for blessings like going to heaven? Aren't indulgences then a biblical practice? Okay, there's a difference between an indulgence and an offering. An offering is a free will offering, and I believe in offerings. I give offerings all the time. I do this on a regular weekly basis, and I give it to the church for the church to do good things. What I don't do is go and buy a certificate of salvation, and I don't pay the church so that I can receive forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm. I give gifts to the church because Jesus has freely given me forgiveness of sins. There's a big difference. Big difference. Very big difference. Um, Maybe we'll take this one here also. Um, This is from Galen. Wow, the questions are pouring in this evening. They're just coming rapid fire. All right. Sorcerers will go to the lake of fire. That's what we just read. That's what we just read, yes. Um, Who or what is a sorcerer? A sorcerer is a spiritualist. So somebody who is involved in, you know, contact with the dead, uh, speaking to, you know, to dead spirits and so forth. That's what we talk about spiritualism. Okay. And the Bible says that you should never, ever, ever have any contact with the dead. Anyone who is dead, doesn't matter who they are, we should never contact the dead. The Bible calls that sorcery and we should never go there. Uh, this one is from Benjamin, who's watching also on Facebook. Got a lot of Facebook viewers tonight, which is great. Another question. A friend told me that we will have no memories of earth when we go to heaven. Is this true? Will I still know who my friends and family are when I get to heaven? Oh, good question. Absolutely, you will. And Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, let me just flick over there very quickly. Where did Corinthians go? Has it moved? It hasn't moved? It's still there? No. Yeah, it's still there. And where will we find this? In verse 12, the Bible says, Then in the end of the verse, speaking about in heaven, Then shall I know even as I am known. In other words, I will recognize you even as I am recognized. Which verse was that? That was... First Corinthians chapter 13, end of verse 12. 13, verse 12. Excellent. So we will recognize each other. I'm I'm very glad about that. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) All right. Uh, What about fact number three? Fact number three. Let's get into it. I was just waiting for this one. Fact number three is the location of hellfire. Did you notice what we just read in the last passage? The Bible says that the wicked go up on the surface of the earth. They surround the city and fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. The location of hellfire is the surface of the earth around the new Jerusalem. So it's not beneath the crust. It's not beneath the the crust. It's not somewhere out in space. It's on the surface of the earth, the Bible says, around the new Jerusalem. How do we prove that? Okay, go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Read that one for us, Teresa, and see what it says. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Okay, the Bible speaks here about the heavens, and the Bible speaks about three heavens, the atmosphere, the starry heavens, and paradise where God lives. This is talking about the atmosphere. And the Bible says that the atmosphere and the earth that exists right now, God's preserving it. He's holding it ready for the day of fire. Uh, Next one, what have you got there? Isaiah chapter 34, verse 8 to 9. It says, For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams shall be turned into pitch and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. That's the surface of the earth. 
right there. Okay. The surface. That's where hellfire takes place. That's fact number three. Okay. So here's our fact so far. Let's just, just, just run through what we've established so far. First of all, fact number one, the unsaved do not go to any place of torment or punishment as soon as they die, but they are reserved in the grave until the day of judgment. That's number one. Number two, none of the unsaved will go into hellfire until after the return of Christ. Number three is the location of hellfire. It is on the surface of the earth and it is around the new Jerusalem. All right. We've got some more questions, Lyle. Yes. Okay. Um, our viewers are really paying attention tonight and they've also got some really good questions. So this one's coming from a YouTube viewer and they're asking, does the Bible say that those with lesser sins will burn up quicker? Okay. So the Bible says this. The Bible says that some will be punished with many stripes and some with few. And the Bible also says that we, are, that we, are, we, we receive our, our reward according to our works. Mm. And that's all it says. The rest of that, I'm going to leave up to God. Okay. This one's also from a YouTube viewer. And it says in Revelation 1 verse 7, it refers to the ones that pierced him, seeing Jesus in the second coming. But does this mean that the wicked will be raised to life to witness the second coming of Jesus? No. Only a very special group of wicked will be raised to life. And Jesus specified that group when he was about to be crucified. You can read this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. Jesus is in the court right here. Um, the Bible said he wasn't saying anything. Jesus held his peace and the high priest answered him, answered him and said unto him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said, you have said, nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall you see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And so, as we mentioned before, there are two main resurrections. But Jesus, you know, there is a bunch of other resurrections that are sprinkled throughout history and including this one right here, where the Bible says that Jesus will resurrect those who crucified him mm. to see him come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, last one, Lyle, mm-hmm. before we, uh, I want to hear your next fact. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm just itching to get into this okay. next fact. I'm looking at the time. Just this, is, this is from Pearl on yes. uh, Facebook, came through the back end and she was asking, what about the pre-tribulation rapture? Okay, so the answer to this one is one simple verse. You can answer this entire question with one verse. That is 2 Peter chapter 3 yep. and verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So there's your rapture, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to question that. Uh, and by the way, if you're wondering what the word rapture means, it means to be taken up. Mm-hmm. That's when we're going to be taken up. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Then the Bible tells us what's going to happen in that day. So it says, in the which, in other words, in that day, The heavens, the atmosphere will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Nobody can survive that. If there's no atmosphere and the whole surface of the earth turns to molten lava, you're not going to survive that. That's the answer to your question right there. All right. Well, there's no one left alive on earth after the coming of Jesus. The coming of Jesus. That's why the devil's bound. Exactly. Yeah. Um, All right. What's the fourth fact? Fact number four. (laughs) This is the best one of them all, guys. I've been waiting to get to this one. Here it is. And this will surprise some of you. Hell does not burn forever. It does exist. And it exists for the purpose of ridding the universe of sin. 
And so once hellfire goes out, there will not be a taint or a stain of sin anywhere in the universe. God is not in the business of preserving sin. He came, Jesus died on Calvary to get rid of sin. He's not going to keep it and preserve it for the rest of eternity, even if it is tucked away in hellfire somewhere. He's going to eradicate it. That's the good news. All right, how do we know that? Well, we know that by starting by looking at the location of hellfire. It's on the surface of the earth around the New Jerusalem. I want you to think about that for a moment. If you're in the New Jerusalem and hellfire is around the city and the walls of the city are as clear as crystal, that doesn't sound like much fun, does it? You want to live there for eternity? No. No, not at all. Okay. Let's read some Bible verses. Uh, Why don't you go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 for us, please, Sharissa. Sure. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The words of Jesus. This earth is our home. Mm. And after the thousand years, this is where we will live. And we won't be living on this earth while it is on fire. That fire will go out and Jesus will recreate the earth. Next verse. Uh, Where do you want me to go? 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. Yep. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, if God is going to recreate this earth, make it a new earth, you can't do that if it's on fire. Hellfire goes out. Romans 4 and verse 13. Yep. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was through the righteousness of faith. Nobody wants to inherit, be the heir of a world that is on fire. It's going out. John 3, 16. Oh, we know this one. Yeah, we? do you need to read that one? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yes. Notice, the, notice what it says, that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Reverse that equation. If you do not believe in God and you do not believe in Jesus Christ, what will you do? You will perish. Mm-hmm. The Bible never promises eternal life to the wicked. It only ever promises death. Wow, and that's in a a gem of Scripture that is very well known. That's the best known verse there is in the Bible. And it is crystal clear that hell does not burn forever. Let's go to Romans 6, verse 23. All right. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you sure that's what the Bible says? I just read it. Are you sure it doesn't say the wages of sin is eternal eternal life in hellfire? 100% sure. 100% 100% sure. Okay, yep. so you can go, you can go and look us up, you know, look, <laughs> check it out for yourself. Do not believe what Sharissa and I are just telling you here on Faith FM. Check it out for yourself. Not on Faith FM, on the end of digital. But some I people Faith are FM in the listening on Faith FM. So. Yes. Oh, and Faith FM. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. Okay, uh, where are we? First John 3.15. You know that no murderer has eternal life Yes, that's what it says right there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so no murderer has eternal life. Mm-hmm. You don't, you know, sinners don't have eternal life. Uh, and finally, Ezekiel 18 verse 4, we read this one we last We have time. seen this before. The soul that sins, it shall die. So here's the simple reality. Eternal life is never promised to the wicked. And we could look at one verse after another, after another, after another, after another. All right. Do we have time for more questions? We've got a bunch of things we do could probably want... talk about here. Okay. We have a lot. We probably should do your next point because I think... Do you want me to I'm going one... to answer some questions okay. right. at this point. I'm going to answer some questions. Sure. They're probably already sitting there on your screen. Yes. But I'm just going to answer them anyway. Okay. Go ahead. And the reason I'm going to answer these questions is really quite simple. You see, there are a number of passages in the Bible that seem to indicate that hell burns forever. 
So how do you deal with those particular passages? Uh, there's kind of three of them. Um, there is unquenchable fire, eternal fire, and fire forever. That's what we're going to look at. Mm-hmm. All right, let's start with unquenchable fire. And we're going to begin by considering the word unquenchable. That's old English. It simply means that you cannot extinguish the fire. Correct. Okay, so sometimes we have big bushfires here in Australia and you cannot extinguish them. All you do is you do uh, property protection and wait for the fire to go out because it is impossible to extinguish those fires. Mm. A fire that you cannot extinguish is not a fire that won't go out. It's one that you can't put out. That's the difference. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 27. Sure, read that one for us. But if you will not listen unto me to hallow the Sabbath day and not to bear a burden, even entering in at the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in the gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. Is Jerusalem still burning? No. It was burnt with unquenchable fire, which meant that once it caught fire, nobody could put it out. That's what unquenchable fire is. Mm-hmm. Easy answer. Okay, what about eternal fire or everlasting fire? There's a great verse on this in Jude, verse 7. Why don't you read that one for us? Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Okay, so Sodom and Gomorrah suffered eternal fire. Are Sodom and Gomorrah still burning? No. No. They're not still burning. In fact, Peter expands on this context. Uh, And why don't you read for us then 2 Peter 2 and verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example to those that should live ungodly. Okay, so notice what happens. They suffer eternal fire and are turned into ash. So we ask ourselves a very simple question. What is eternal here? Is it the burning that is eternal or is it the consequence that is eternal? Clearly, the Bible says that when they are burnt with eternal fire, they're turned into ash. The consequences last forever. Those cities were never, be, never, were never rebuilt and never will be mm-hmm. rebuilt. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've got another passage in uh, Malachi chapter 4 and it talks on a very, very similar passage, similar concept right here. For which verse would you like me to read? 1 to 3. Okay. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven and all the proud and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, and it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And you shall tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Lord of hosts. This, this verse here really gives the whole picture, doesn't it? Mm. The Bible says that the wicked are turned into ash. God recreates the world. Well, it's going to be recreated on top of that ash, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Ash under the soles of our feet. Finally, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46. Let's read this one. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Okay. So what is the punishment of the wicked? What is the wages of sin? Death. Death. So the punishment is everlasting. They are dead forever. They never come back from the dead. It's really that simple. It's not, notice, notice the difference. It's not everlasting punishing. Mm-hmm. If it was everlasting punishing, then they'd be tortured forever in hellfire. If it's everlasting punishment, it means that they receive the wages of sin and they are never resurrected again. But what about the worm that doesn't die and the fire that 
that's not quenched? No, good question. Jesus talks about this. Okay, and you'll find it in Mark 9, verse 45 to 46. Uh, Let me read this one for you. It says, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be thrown into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not nigh and the fire is not quenched. Okay, so we talked about unquenchable fire. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I want you to notice here that this is not a disembodied soul. It has feet, hands, eyes. Mm -hmm. There's nowhere in the Bible that the Bible talks about anything even remotely like the concept of a disembodied soul going into hellfire. Another one of those verses, just not in the Bible. Now, when Jesus gives this example, this one's super interesting because he doesn't actually refer to hell. So the English translation calls it hell, mm-hmm. but it's not. That is He's talking about Gehenna. Mm-hmm. And that's the word, that's the original word in the, in, in the Bible. And Gehenna was the rubbish tip outside of Jerusalem. And when you went to Gehenna, this was, you know, an agrarian society. And so you have lots of animals that are used for transport. You also had very poor people, you know, beggars and so forth that would get thrown into the rubbish dump. And the way it worked was this. They would allow those bodies to be uh, eaten by worms and dehydrated until they could burn them. The rubbish dump was known for three things. There was always worms there. There was always fire there. And anything that went there was turned to ash. Jesus gives an example. And he's like, this is what hellfire is like right here. Hellfire is just like Gehenna. So are you saying that uh, the term forever in the Bible just means to the end? Well, Sharissa, we use it that way all the time, even today. We do. You think about it. I mean, if, 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 uh, if we had to pick you up from your house this evening, And we said, you know, we'll be there at seven o'clock. And so at seven o'clock, you came out and stood on the footpath. It was freezing cold, right? Mm -hmm. And we turned up at quarter past seven. You could get in the car like, oh, it's so freezing out there. I've been out there forever. It's true. I say that. We say that all the time. Mm -hmm. There are 57 places in the Bible where forever comes to an end. I'll give you a couple of examples. Go to uh, First Samuel. Yes, where would you like The Bible uses the word forever in exactly the same context as we do today. Forever simply means until it's done. Mm-hmm. So let's go to 1 Samuel uh, 22 and also... Chapter verse, 22? Uh, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 1, yep. verse 22 and also verse 28. All right. But Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned, then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. Notice how long forever was? As long as he lives. Mm. Jonah was swallowed by a fish. We presume a whale. (laughs) And he was there for three days in the belly of the whale, the Bible says, and I'm pretty sure that felt like he was there forever. Mm Let's read what he says. He says, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. And I'm sorry, I'm reading from Jonah chapter 2, verse 6 here. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yes. And if you go back to Revelation chapter 20, uh, we can read it right here. It is such a perfect example of context. Notice verse 9. The Bible says, They, that's the wicked, went up on the surface of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and did what? Devoured them, destroyed them. Okay, so if any of you out there as listeners are confused over the word devour, I really like (laughs) apple pie. 
So if you send an apple pie to the end dot digital, <laughs> I'll bring it here on the set next Wednesday and publicly demonstrate for you what the word devour means. I just might help you all out. And that. <laughs> so this is this is our way of you know, speaking some apple pie. Okay. So notice it says devour in the clearest possible language. Mm. Then it continues on. The devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Mm -hmm. You can't have both forever and ever and devour if you use forever in the context of eternity or immortality. When you throw immortality into the context, you have eternity. Without that, mm -hmm. it is until the end, wow. until they are devoured. Well, uh, these are some very, like for many people, I'm sure, our listeners, this could be a very fresh perspective because this is not very popular that you're sharing. Well, this is what I love about it, though. You don't have to throw any passages out of the Bible, mm -hmm. okay? You don't have to have a God who is a tyrant and who is worse than any human on earth. You don't have to do away with free will and the, and the power to choose. You don't have to do away with love. You've got God who is actually cleansing the universe. You don't have to have sin preserved forever. And you are going with what the Bible says in the clearest Bible. I could show you verse after verse after verse on this subject. Excellent. Well, our time is literally running away on us. And I just want to sneak one question in. Just and the rest we're just going to hold till next Wednesday. We are. It's just because you've said this already. And I think this view may have just come. But where is hell now? Can you just r remind us? Okay. The Bible says that hell does not take place until the end of the world. Yeah. So hell does not exist anywhere right now. Mm -hmm. It does not happen until the end of the world. And then the Bible says that hell, and you can read this right here. So the passages I want you to read, because you probably joined late in the program, the passages I want you to read is Matthew chapter 13, the parable of, starting in verse 29, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And I want you to read Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 through 9, and you'll find out where hell will be when it happens. But it's not happening right now. All right. Well, we have really done a good job of fitting all of that in this short space of time tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you'd like to obtain tonight's free copy of the free offer, I really encourage you to do so because this is a hot topic, no pun intended. So text the word HELL to 0428-833-386 and we will make sure you get this. And if you want to talk to someone about tonight's topic, please text the word CHAT to the same number. We are going to be having a break, but we'll be back on Wednesday night next week for for something you've entitled, Why Hasn't Justice Ended? Why Hasn't Injustice Injustice. Ended? Injustice I, Ended. Okay, Why Hasn't Injustice Ended? So don't, it's not too late to share this with your friends and remember to subscribe to the channel or to our Facebook page. Hit the bell so that you know when we go live, 8 o'clock next Wednesday night. And Lyle, do you have any final comments as we close yeah, out? Yeah, just closing up. I just want to say that this is probably one of the big, biggest questions that I get from non-believers is, if God is a God of love and He really loves us, why hasn't He ended pain already? There's a really good reason for that. And so we're going to come back and look at it. I'm going to remind you very quickly of last night's verse. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. That is something to look forward to. That is something to attain. And we can do that by giving our lives to Jesus Christ. Why don't you make your decision to do that right now? This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.